Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian. This podcast version of our interview is brought to you by L3 Technologies. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report. I'm Vaga Maradian here at the Center for Naval Analysis in Northern Virginia to talk to Michael Kaufman, the head of uh, the Russia section here. Michael, good to see you. Yeah, great being on your program. Um, so let's let's start. Um, uh, uh, there are new sanctions that are being imposed on Russia in the wake of uh, you know the administration's uh, position is to punish Russia even further for the Skripal uh, attacks that happened in uh, in the UK in Salisbury, uh, where uh, Michael Skripal and his daughter uh, both were exposed to Novichok. Uh, they survived, but then the container was picked up by another couple, and sadly she's uh, perished. Uh, uh, her partner is. Uh, um, is, has managed to survive that attack. From your standpoint, do you have a little counter view on sanctions and the likelihood for efficacy? There are some folks who are saying, look, sanction the daylights out of Russia, you know, ratchet them up even farther, uh, get them to even uh, cause the, the potential collapse of the Putin regime, if, if you want to put it that way. From your standpoint, why do you think that's not, you know, what, what is effective about that and what's not effective about that? Right. Um, well, just to be clear, it's not that I'm at all opposed to sanctions. It's just it's become pretty clear in Washington, D.C., that Sanctioning Russia and punishing Russia, in, in most cases thus far, at least ineffectually, they've not had any discernible, compelling, or coercive effect. As you've not seen Vladimir Putin change on any aspects of Russian policy. Instead, we have essentially engaged in an escalatory cycle, right, where we're likely, if anything, to see retaliation from Russia for these sanctions. And, and maybe that's totally fine, but the, the challenge is that the sanctions are principally an alibi for not having a Russia policy or a Russia strategy in Washington, D.C. That's pretty obvious, I think, to any observer in D.C., and, and it's fairly evident in Russia. Um, so uh, while not all opposed to that, and I think it is important to, to, to come up with a strategy to constrain Russia over the long term, right? And some of these sanctions, technically they are quite clever, and they are designed specifically to do that. It's important to, to reflect on a couple points because, um, you know, as Oscar Wilde said, there are two great tragedies in life. The first one is not getting what you want, and the second one is getting it, right? So we have to be very careful with sanctions because we may very well either not get what we want at all, or we may get what we want and be very unhappy with when we end up with it. And, I'll, and I highlight these two, where, where I'm wary. Um, the not getting what we want part is the part of layering and layering punishment, an effectual punishment on the adversary. Um, you know, deterrence is very much context-based, right? Like, you really have to punish the adversary, and they have to understand that it's in return for specific actions. And if they don't do those actions, you won't punish them, right? But sanctions are coming out of Congress. They're not coming out of the executive branch. And, and, and the reality is that Congress is punishing Russia, A, to punish Russia, B, to punish Russia for the happening in the Helsinki summit, that's pretty clear, and C, well, there is, there is a sort of 1990s analysis piece that I think is very dated, it's a very dated perspective on Russia, that Russia is somehow behind Putin, run by oligarchs, and uh, if they have money troubles, then they will eventually replace them. And the fact is that, that Russia doesn't actually exist, that Russia really stopped existing around 2003. Um, and the truth of anything, that there's going to be a much stronger rally around the flag effect, probably within Moscow. Uh, but that's fine. That's contestable, and, and we, can, we can certainly see what pans out. But I'm very skeptical because it's clear that Congress and the U.S. policy community doesn't necessarily actually want anything specific from Russia, and Russians believe ultimately that, naturally, from their perspective, that, look, the whole point of sanctions is just to contain them, and we're just going to keep sanctioning and punishing them, and that's not tied to their behavior, right? We would like them to change their behavior, and they don't believe the sanctions are about their behavior, so they're not going to change it. Um, the other part is, of course, we should be wary because ultimately either collapse or too much instability 
or frankly, a replacement of Vladimir Putin is not necessarily something that the United States want. I mean, there's a much stronger configuration of Russian domestic politics, um, and, and here, the bill will point, but a lot of Russians think that whoever is the next person that comes after Vladimir Putin will really make the West miss Vladimir Putin, meaning that's much likely to be somebody to the right of him with much more either nationalistic or right-wing or ideological beliefs than Vladimir Putin himself has, right? So that's also very much an issue as well of, you know, you have to be careful what you want. My personal view is that I don't like sanctions and punishments without any strategy or policy behind it. I don't like to see that as a substitute for actually having a vision of how are you going to constrain Russia or contain Russia and an and, and ability to even articulate what it is precisely you want from them. I strongly suspect that we may end up in an escalatory cycle. And here's the thing. If the sanctions are genuinely effective, which is a big question, um, Economic warfare is a huge, huge advantage of the United States, right? That is where we have dramatic asymmetric advantages over Russia. And if Russia eventually feels that um, it, it simply has no way forward in our competition because of the amount of economic damage the United States is inflicting, it's unsustainable. And, and it's right for Washington to want to potentially put in that position. I would say be very cautious on, on putting the United States in a place where we have escalated the, the confrontation to a point um, that has run roughshod well ahead of United States conventional deterrence and ability to actually deter Russia action. Um, we got exactly in very similar position with Japan in the interwar period, right, with, with the degree of sanctions and political pressure the United States placed on Japan. Um, and, and you may believe that a weaker conventional adversary would never deign to, to attack uh, the much superior and majestic the United States, but we know exactly how that history went, and I'm very concerned particularly about the current military balance in Europe um, and about how much Russia has gotten out of the use of the military as an instrument of national power, that we don't want to run too far ahead in confrontation of our actual ability to deter Russian military action. Well, so let me follow on that point. So if you were the one who was crafting the policy, because you've mentioned this, you and I were in an event up on uh, Capitol Hill, actually, and you made a very, very similar point about this, the need for a cogent strategy. Yeah. Um, what, does, what should that cogent strategy look like with a country that is actively, uh, right? I mean, assassinations, I mean, everybody thinks that was the, you know, it was actually the third assassination attempt on British soil, right? Markov was the first one, then you had Litvinenko, and then you had the Skripals, and now you have uh, another fatality, so it brings it to uh, three um, overall, right? Which one would say is a pretty brazen act, especially when the Russians are good enough not to get caught. They got caught on purpose. They wanted everybody to know that sure. they did it. Uh, so it's, it's a little bit of smirch uh, happening again. Uh, where you know the the Stalinist effort to kill all spies uh, that had turned or, or left the Soviet Union in, in the late 40s and early 50s, but um, you also have Russian fingerprints involved. Whether it's Brexit, whether it was in the French political cycle and election, they tried to throw it at the vast, last minute uh, with uh, you know dirty information or, or information or emails about Macron. Uh, it's happened the same thing in the Netherlands. Uh, Italians will tell you about how involved the Russians have been, and then it goes just across to other countries. This information, even in the Nordics, from your standpoint, what is just what does a cogent U.S. strategy look like in order to try to deter Russia from taking some of these actions? What does an alliance-wide strategy look like in order to be able to handle this, given that it's a destabilizing influence for governments across the board? Okay, well, first, let's recognize that we're fundamentally in a geopolitical confrontation, right? And this confrontation has played out the political, the informational, the economic, and diplomatic level, right? And this is where both sides are going to use all the instruments of national power they have 
to compete with each other and to attack each other. And I, in a recent article on War on the Rocks, basically defined Russian strategy today as one of raiding an international brigandry, that Russia's engaged in a cost and position strategy, right? And we are, in effect, engaged in a cost and position strategy in Russia, too. Russian strategy is based on political warfare and cyber warfare, right? Um, and, and they've inflicted pretty decent damage and weakening effects, particularly in the United States. Uh, United States strategy is based much more on economic warfare, okay? So we are going back and forth in these sort of, in these sort of bouts. Um, first and foremost, remember Frederick the Great's maxim, that he who defends everything defends nothing, right? So we have to really tear some of the activity and say we're not going to, we're going to contest to the extent we can all forms of Russian malign influence, right, and behavior, but there are certain specific things we really need to defend, and there are certain specific things that we really want to deter, right? And then the rest of it, we cannot spread ourselves thinly over the entire, you know, uh, from, from NATO to West to Europe and then to the abstract sort of liberal international order, right? Um, so first and foremost, I think it's really important to gear punishments and to gear actions that are meant to deter the adversary uh, as things that you put together and you pulse to them. That is, the response to the initial scruple attack was really good. It was a way for the West to package several actions that Russia had done together and to conduct a targeted, pretty large-scale response back to them, for them. And it was probably a much stronger response than they expected. Right? Next. After having done this, it's very important to threaten the adversary with the pain of more things to come. Why I'm a bit wary of firing the entire magazine, right, just all off the bat, we're going to do these sanctions, we're going to do all the other sanctions, and then what? And if this leads, if this becomes just an escalatory cycle, a spiral, what are we going to threaten them next when you fire the rest of the magazine? Because you're not going to have a lot more love beyond this. This is like telling your kid, I'm never taking you to the park again, and your kid doesn't believe you. Yeah, I mean, well, well, look, there's just the reality of that, that um, having inflicted pain on the other side, you then have to look, and then you just have to make a clear constructive threat of more pain to come. But you have to have things in the tank to actually threaten and punish them with that are more to come. If you just consistently shoot them every couple of months, you should do sanctions every couple of months, right? And the sanctions are not necessarily tied to a specific action or activity. Um, not, not, only, not only is the adversary not necessarily likely to be deterred, but you may well run out of a lot of your ammunition before that other side successfully retaliates and escalates the conflict, too. So that part I'm a bit wary on. I think that we should take this one step at a time with Russia. I also think it's important to play the long game and understand that this is an enduring competition and not have Congress basically fire all the economic ammunition the United States has in the first couple of years, thinking that Russia is like Nigeria or Botswana. Okay? So, uh, these sanctions did not really lead to the collapse of Saddam Hussein. They have not led to the collapse of Iran. I can't imagine where they would lead to the collapse of Russia, a, a much larger, more capable economic and military adversary, and fundamentally a, a great power competitor. So I'm just not seeing that. Um, you know, in terms of do we have time for me to lay out an entire strategy for confronting, competing with Russia, and write my own NSC 68 right here, right now? No, I'm afraid I don't have it. You know, you'll have to come back to me for that for another session. But they, but they do have a vision of how to structure an interaction with the adversary whereby you deter their action, military action against allies, where you try to deter their ability to engage in coercive diplomacy, diplomacy backed by the threat of force and violence, which they've been pretty effective with in the last uh, four years. And then the third one is how do you actually deter this rating campaign, this cost and position campaign against the United States, in which case they are able to inflict fairly effective asymmetric damage and, and conduct their own campaign of punishment. That's very important for a simple reason. Your own punishments don't work that well against people who believe they can punish you back. 
they're far less coercive, right? If the other side thinks that they can stick you just as hard with something else in return for what you've done to them, they're not likely to be as coerced or as deterred, or as deterred, sorry, by, by the punishment that you're threatening them with. Uh, do you, so what do you think, okay, so um, I don't expect a full NSC 68 yeah. from you, although we're willing to come back in order to do that. Uh, even Friday, if we have to do it, it's Friday. It, it's, it's, Friday. <laughs> uh, it's Friday, and it's gonna be, it's a Friday in August in Washington. Um, <laughs> But um, what do you think some core pieces of that are, right? Like hold some of it back. Um, I mean, I, I want to ask you another challenge, right? Because everybody in the policy community will laud some of these actions. On the other hand, are concerned about sort of the mixed messages that are coming out of the president and then some of the messages that are coming out of the entire national security establishment. The national security establishment is speaking with basically one voice. And you could even argue Congress is speaking with one voice. Right. But a lot of almost every country, especially authoritarian countries, always look at what the big guy has to say, not necessarily what the minions mm -hmm. are saying. I'm not trying to reduce anybody very senior into the level of minion. Yeah, um, list all the minions in D.C. <laughs> <laughs> it, would be, it would be a long long list, and, and then the journalists would be at the very bottom of that list. Uh, but you know, g give us a sense on, in broad strokes, right? You I mean, you said you don't want to shoot the magazine at once. You want to have this targeted. You don't want to protect everything. So if you were going to do the top three things, you know, Michael's three things. Michael King for a day or president for the day, yeah. he's going to direct this to his national security advisor. What do you think are the three things that we can start in order, or you know, the three foundational principles even of a sound long-term Russia strategy? All right. Well, I think first and foremost, Russia strategy has got to be about Russia. Most of the time, Russia strategy in Washington, D.C. begins with defending all the policies Washington already has out there, then defending American allies and then not being able to remotely even say what it is they want from Russia, what they expect from Russia, what they, what they think Russia can give them. So Russia's strategy really has to be focused actually first and foremost on Russia and our interaction with Russia, right? And that strategy has to be about understanding what's the competition really about? What's the essence? What do they want from us? What are they trying to do to us? What are we competing over? So in, in some respects, that competition is principally transactional. A big part of it is really focused on Russia, seeking to establish a sphere of influence in its near abroad. And recognition, desiring recognition as a great power, which you can then leverage for greater influence in global affairs. Sure, that's fine. That's, a, that's traditional pursuits of Russian goals. We get that. And we're not going to concede necessarily that, and we're not going to agree to it. That be as it may, we have to understand that the United States, first and foremost, has to be able to effectively deter a Russian strategy of cost and position against the United States homeland and against American people. This is not geopolitics, it's more biopolitics, because this is a strategy that doesn't deal with land, it deals with people and the impact on people and leveraging the population of the state, right? And it has to be able to effectively deter and deal with the adversary in those domains. Because so far, at least, what we see from research and other things is that um, conflict in cyberspace doesn't really lead to escalation or bleed over in other domains, so it's very hard to deter the other side by threatening a conventional war, be what it may, in return for cyber attacks. Hence, it's pretty hard to with economic sanctions deter cyber attacks is what I'm, and I don't think we're going to, in fact, I think we're going to see the opposite reaction from Russia. I think we're going to see more painful cyber attacks in return for economic sanctions, if anything, but I don't, I just don't see that linkage is taking place. So she wants, we got to come up with an answer to that, and in the interim, obviously, it's great if we could have a deterrent solution in, in cyberspace, um, and in the interim, we have to mitigate the attractiveness of that strategy, and we have to reduce Russia's ability to punish us back to make our own punishments better against them, more effective against them, right? That's part one. Part two is, of course, as we're going to engage in this confrontation, we are going to escalate against each other, and we should remember that at certain points, 
we will put the adversary in a position where they will very likely debate um, the advantage of having a crisis and sorting it all out, right? And that crisis will be in an area where the correlation of interest and the correlation of forces favors them. And you know that that means somewhere in Russia is near abroad. So we have to be very careful on how we march up our ability to effectively deter the adversary and to potentially impose costs on them and to threaten the likelihood that a conventional conflict would escalate. And it would escalate in a manner that would be not necessarily controlled. There would be great ambiguity as to where it would take us and a potential cost from Russia. And that has to walk in tandem in confrontation. Right now, they're like two totally different you know, orchestras, right? There's what the, the military and the executive branch may be doing. And then there's Congress. And Congress, you know, Congress is a great luxury. I mean, it can influence and impact foreign policy without necessarily being accountable for it. So, well, so how do you um, square that circle, right? You have the national security community and Congress that are generally on the same page, and then you have a president who is, has a very, very different approach, and his allies have a very different approach, yeah. whether in the media or anywhere else. Does this cause uh, a challenge or friction or an opportunity for the Russians to exploit? Or, I mean, what's your sense of that sort of disconnect? Well, absolutely. So uh, people typically assume that the other side looks at how strong you are in your foreign policies and judges what you're going to do on the basis of how you respond to them in the foreign policy arena. But that's not really true, actually. The other side, first and foremost, looks at the nature of your domestic politics. How strong is the U.S. president? How able is he to control, corral Washington, D.C.? Whether or not he really is powerful in his own country. And if he's not, then there's no expectation that he can actually deliver anything. In fact, Russians, it's clear to me, have decided last July that the United States president, as is right now, is fundamentally too weak and unable to deliver on any foreign policy deal, which is why they're not looking for any specific concessions from him. I mean, they'll think he was not Vladimir Putin going to meet with Donald Trump, thinking they'd have a cup of coffee and then Donald Trump would dissolve NATO for him or give him any concrete you know, deliverables. The Russian view is already that the U.S. president is too weak. So they have a long-term strategy. Their strategy from there, and, and, and I'm telling this a bit of a short story, but to help, to help answer the question, was to essentially uh, build a bridge to normalize the proposition of high-level negotiations between the United States and Russia, of discourse and, and discussions at that level, and to legitimate it within the West and within the United States. And then later on, their hope is that the U.S. president may be strong enough sufficiently in D.C. so that they, he can actually deliver on certain things. But at least for now, they're kind of building, uh, building that link. In that regard, they actually were not all that successful. However, all that said, well, uh, you know, it's not, I think from Russian perspective, is they don't think that the best is necessarily the enemy good. A great deal of divisiveness, polarization, and, and, and weakness in Washington, D.C., and the schism between the executive branch, um, not by the executive branch, I mean the, the, the bureaucratic and policy community, and the president himself and Congress, is still just quite as useful and quite as effective, right? And I think that, in particular, that they may be quite happy with the fact that they may have somewhat isolated the president from even his own intelligence community, right? That in the, there could be a case where in some crisis with Russia, the president's actually not necessarily sure on who he believes, his own intelligence people, or what Vladimir Putin just told him on the phone. Could be, that, could be, that could be potentially a real scenario. So, so there I would simply say that it's the third tier of, of our strategy to Russia really needs to be about the United States and about ourselves, right? And it's about getting things in order in the, in the United States in our domestic political scene and also in your economic scene, right? So the other side is really gauging what its long-term prospects are in the competition on the basis of how they evaluate the United States and its foundations of power, and to what extent they see the 10, 20, 30-year trajectory of the United States 
as a country that set itself up to compete with China, uh, frankly, a country whose economic foundations were far better than the Soviet Union's ever were when it comes to great power competition, and Russia and other uh, rogue states at the same time, I think Russians themselves have a lot of big questions about the United States as a deliberate power, about the economic foundations of the United States' current extended deterrence commitments, the extent to which the United States can sustain the battle for dominance and primacy, uh, both in terms of the military balance and all the commitments that's made out there. And it's very important for the U.S. policy community to get it together here and to signal effectively that, yeah, not only are we willing to compete, but actually we have pretty good prospects in this competition. It's great that the national defense strategy signals game on. That's fantastic. But one of the biggest questions I think a lot of us had is, can we resource the strategy? Is this really, can we do it? Because this would have been a hard sell. Uh, this would have been difficult against uh, economically weaker opponents, given what the United States faces in terms of its long-term challenges. I mean, it really needs to think through. Um, because at least today where we are now, well, plenty of the United States think that Russia doesn't have a long game. Well, there are just as many people in Moscow that don't think that necessarily that the European Union or the United States have a long game either. Um, let me ask you what you thought about uh, the Helsinki summit. It was very unusual. You had the president of the United States meeting privately with the Russian president for two hours. Uh, and then there was the press conference, which you referred to at the very top of this in terms of propelling uh, in a very bipartisan way Congress to respond. As somebody who's, who's dedicated his career to watching Russia uh, and the United States, what did you think of, of that summit meeting? I think that it's a bit of a truism that there's no way Russians could lose. Obviously, uh, this meeting like that and the optics of it were a huge boon for Vladimir Putin going into his fourth or depending how you count fifth term. Um, all that being said, I think that they won too much, and I had written uh, to this extent that uh, first and foremost, yes, they got the meeting with Donald Trump, and they had the opportunity to really present his case to them, right? I mean, that private meeting, I think, fundamentally for the Russians was about isolating him from his own policy community and his own intelligence community and giving their side of the story. Uh, but things very much went off the rails for them uh, at the press conference because their goal was not to seek any concessions. In fact, a lot of the establishment that were writing these articles worried that Donald Trump would withdraw from Syria recognize annexation of Crimea or some such, I think they quite had their concerns in the wrong place. Um, the Russian goal is really long term. Again, they're thinking years down the line. And the Russian goal was to really uh, not just officially end the policy of isolation of Russia, but more importantly, to start legitimizing a series of negotiations and interactions with Russia that later on, when they believe the president can actually impose his will on his own policy community, that he will then be able to deliver to them some important concessions, right? Uh, and there I think that um, they, they had fairly mixed results. That is, not only will the rest of the establishment rally again around the flag and punish Russia for what happened at Helsinki, but I think that um, the, what happened at the press conference was actually uh, harmful to their long-term objectives because they're trying to legitimize that entire interaction within the Washington uh, uh, policy community, and, and they had the opposite effect. Um, that said, though, at, at the end of the day, I think that the, the summit uh, is still fairly destructive from the standpoint of a coherent approach to Russia and Washington, D.C., and going back to the beginning of our conversation, since we can't have that, it seems like we're just going to sanction Russia. And I suspect I'm worried about both aspects of the sanctions. I suspect that they either won't work and will fire all the ammunition needlessly, or they might work too well 
they might work much better than the United, rest of the United States defense establishment is prepared to deal with. Uh, well, and that's the last question I want to take you to. Um, a, a lot of, there was a lot of concern it, it, that the summit with Russia ended up being um, the action, I think, that some people were concerned that Russia was going to take, right? And so, in a sense, there was a little bit of a relief that it was like, okay, it's only a, a, a summit meeting. Whereas summit expected a test of the alliance that was going to be a very, very different test. Uh, a, 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 an actual military test for which the alliance was ill-prepared to respond to, whether it was in Moldova, whether, whether it was in Montenegro. Um, everybody's attention is focused on the Baltics, and, and then it happens in the underbelly where um, there is a lot of activity going, a lot more activity, I think, than many people in Washington recognize. From your perspective, it's a two-part question. First, do we, does the alliance have the capabilities that as, as Russians, which it's always a ledger. I mean, what, what's good about the Russians is it's always a hard calculation. What's your throw weight? What's your munitions? It, it becomes a very sort of, okay, he can deal me a lot of damage. Got it. Um, and then there's all of the other factors. But there is that, uh, you know, several of the, the, the smartest people in NATO have always told me the great thing about the Russians is put a lot of capability against them. It's a hard calculation. And they go, okay, got it. From your standpoint, do, is there enough of that hard capability. And second, if we're preparing for a Russian reaction to these sanctions that will be different, what are the sort of a couple of the top scenarios we should be, wait, where do we need to protect as opposed to trying to protect everything? Sure. Um, in terms of capability, well, there is a very strong and dominant strain of thought, and it's always in the national security establishment, that more is more, and if we just buy more capability and stick it in front of the adversary, then that will deter him. Um, I hate to argue with the brilliant strategic wisdom of one plus one equals two, but I don't think that that's necessarily going to be the answer to Russia. It's not just about capability, there's correlation of forces, it's about correlation of forces and methods and forms of warfare. That's where the conversation of Russia goes. So uh, putting a lot of things forward necessarily that might get melted in the first couple of days or weeks of a battle is not necessarily a brilliant plan. Um, putting a lot of capabilities that may not necessarily be decisive in the more likely context. Sure, I mean, you, in most cases, you can probably deter the, the grand conventional high-end fight. And, and, and oftentimes, actually, the prospect of ultimately uncontrolled uh, nuclear escalation may even deter it. But that being said, there are a lot of problems that the United States has to solve for that will not be solved for where simply let's buy more stuff and then let's stick the stuff forward and then the more forward stuff will deter the Russians. I'm, I'm highly skeptical of that. It's important to understand the changing character of war and also some of the enduring problems in deterrence and compellence. They, they're still with us today. It just doesn't work that way. And a lot of that, a lot of that conversation is less about deterrence. It's, actually, it's much more about defense. Um, with respect to a, a potential response from Russia, well, I mean, I often think that the surest way to not get the response where you want is to war game it to death, right? So it very rarely comes exactly in the where you expect it to come, and if it does, it very rarely comes in the exact form that you expect it to come, in the exact same chain of events, and then the road to war that you've, like, gamed out a hundred times. It's highly unlikely that we'll ever, that we'll ever be that, that unlucky uh, uh, in that sense. So I completely agree with you that... Um, Look, the closest uh, uh, NATO really came to a conflict confrontation with Russia was over that Su-24M shootdown back in November 2015 by Turkey. You recall that? And, I, and I'm quite confident that there wasn't a lot of planning and wargaming done about a possible military exchange clash between Russia and Turkey, given the focus on, on the Baltics. So uh, there again, um, I personally think that the, that the initial escalatory response from Russia won't necessarily be military. 
because military, of course, Russia has a panoply of options if it wants to punish Ukraine. It has a lot of things they can do to find U.S. forces elsewhere, for example, um, uh, Afghanistan or Syria. But it'll likely be, again, a return to this coercive raiding campaign. That is, what sort of costs can Russia directly impose on the United States homeland, and, and actually in a meaningful way to, that, that Congress would notice and be concerned about in exchange for these economic sanctions? And we have plenty of news and information about, about on all the various preparatory um, activities that Russia is conducting to lay the infrastructure behind much more effective and much more crippling cyber attacks and other forms of political warfare. Michael Kaufman, the director of the Russia program here at uh, CNA. Always a pleasure talking to you. Great talking to you as well.